early fall. It's an active time in our garden. We're busy removing declining summer vegetables and flowers, maybe and this is a good idea, cleaning up debris from the garden beds, maybe adding compost and mulch, and then planting either a cover crop or a cool season vegetable. But let's reminisce a bit. How was your 2023 garden? Specifically, how was your backyard tomato crop? Which varieties were successful? Which tomatoes were a bust? Did you get hit by jalapeno gate with your tomatoes? Mm, it's a possibility. We'll find out. We're talking with Don Shore. He owns Redwood Barn Nursery in Davis, California, an avid tomato grower as well. Now, the tomatoes we're going to talk about were our successes and failures, along with Don's customers' successes and failures. But again, all gardening is local. Your results may vary. And uh, Don, I think one way we may have varied from the rest of the country uh, unlike the rest of the country that had a lot of hot spells, we had a fairly mild summer. Yeah, we had. I got, went back and crunched the data, which you can gather from the automated weather stations at the Simis website. And we had in Davis 13 days that hit 100 degrees or above. That's pretty average, actually. And then we had 30 or 40 that were in the mid to upper 90s, which means not pollination weather, but still not a problem for tomato plants. They wouldn't be setting during those times. We had a lot of pollination weather this year. I know people always think we had a, a terribly hot summer, but honestly, it was a pretty balmy, pleasant summer here in the Sacramento Valley. And that means that at least half of our days between mid-May and mid-September, we had suitable weather for not just pollination, but fruit development. So it should have been should have been a pretty good year for tomatoes. In fact, it should have been a real good year for tomatoes around the Sacramento Valley. And talking with customers, many people said things like, oh, my best year ever for tomatoes. And then, but, and they would mention <laughs> some one variety that didn't do well or that wasn't what it was supposed to be. We can come back to that topic for yeah. sure. Um, but in general, good yields across the board for most varieties and even some heirlooms stood out as having good yields, which we don't really promise to people. So yeah, reflecting back, this is uh, the one of the things I do like to do in October is sit down with my database and the list of the tomatoes that I planted well, I still can remember or even better, still walk out there and see how they're doing and make notes about how things did. Because next spring, February, we're buying seeds and getting going on planting things. And your subjective memories aren't as good, especially as you get older. So it's a good <laughs> idea to make notes about these things. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, that's uh, I, I always put in the date in my uh, little garden diary here of the dates I plant the tomato plants and the days I uh, remove the tomato plants. And right. uh, I think it was the earliest removal on record for um, my Sweet Million, which is my favorite cherry tomato i have planted it mm -hmm. year after year after year and it's always been very productive not this year it hmm. got pulled out on september 10th and production was minimal but again looking at the sweet million plant and the way it was producing tomatoes it just looked odd to me it goes this doesn't look right this doesn't look like a typical sweet million cherry tomato <laughs> so we may that is another topic to come back to later on where we all may have been bamboozled a little bit yeah, well, I mean, there's a couple where I know it wasn't what I planted, and we all know there were some seed mix-ups. So some of my favorites, like the Chef's Choice series, Chef's Choice Orange, being having become over the last several years one of my all-time favorite tomatoes, 
Well, it was a small red tomato this year, so clearly that wasn't Chef's Choice Orange, whatever the label may have said on the pot. There were some seed mix-ups, yes. So that one, unfortunately, did not rank highly because it isn't what it was supposed to be. A little surprised at your sweet million, but that is certainly possible as well. And I, I do have to say that chatting with master gardeners who come in and compare notes with me, they man the tables down at the farmer's market in Davis, and we compare notes about what kind of questions they're getting. This year, if people came up to us or them and said, I didn't have a real good year with my tomatoes. We start with two questions. One, are you using a drip irrigation system? Two, do you have raised planters? Because those were the common factors in plants that didn't do well. Not because of drip irrigation per se, not because of raised planters per se, but because of the issues with those two things. Not running drip systems long enough, so they weren't watering enough. And raised planters have the advantage of early planting, but the disadvantage of simply not retaining moisture and not retaining nutrients. So those are two factors that I think were a problem for a lot of people this year. You know, most summers we can just blame it on the weather. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't get a good yield. It was too hot. But this year, the weather was very cooperative, except for a very cool start that a lot of people did comment on. You know, if you planted on Fred Hoffman's birthday this year, it was a little chilly back then and the soil really wasn't up to warmth. So things got off to a slower start, but they did catch up and do well in general. But not if you weren't watering deeply and not if you didn't have enough nutrients and moisture retention in your soil, which is a common problem with raised planters. You know, actually, I did a little uh, onshore uh, tip on my tomatoes this year hmm. uh, because, you know, if, if you're in the habit of starting your tomatoes from seed, you might be doing that in January and February, and I usually time it to go in uh, around April 28th. But usually, and this isn't a surprise, the tomatoes need to get in the ground way before April 28th right. because they're getting a little cramped. Well, you offered the suggestion. I think it's a very good suggestion, too, for people, especially if you go to the nursery and buy a six-pack of plants and you don't plan on planting them for a while, pot them up, move them up to one-gallon containers, and they will be a stronger, sturdier plant that will adapt to the situation a lot easier than those little cramped, uh, squeezed plants. Yeah, keep them moving. I mean, that's really important for any vegetables that you're buying. It's true now in the cool season as you're buying some of the coal crops and things to go in the ground. Those little cell packs don't have much root zone. And so getting them into whatever is the appropriate bigger container. And with tomatoes, they're so vigorous. And you can put them into a black one-gallon nursery pot, put that out in a sunny location in middle of March or, or April, and it'll warm up and the plants will grow quite vigorously. And you'll have an 18 to 24-inch plant when it goes in the ground. It'll be growing along just great. And my experience is that with soil at the right temperature and proper management of irrigation, it doesn't miss a beat. They go right in and they just take right off from that. Much better than trying to hold little four inch pots on your porch until that perfect planting day and having them get increasingly root bound. So I, I'm glad you adopted this practice and I highly recommend it. Keep them moving to keep the roots growing, keep the tops growing and don't worry if they're getting tall. That's okay. You're going to drop them down deep. I like to joke. I want to drop them down below the gopher zone, uh, which yeah. is about the top 12 inches. That's where gophers are really active. So, hey, if I can drop it below that, I'm that much ahead of them too. Well, I, I did that test a, a little bit uh, more in depth this year. Uh, back on April mm -hmm. 7th, I planted plants twice. I planted them straight from the three-inch container uh, into the ground, and then that was on April 7th. 
And I mm. took another one of those same plants, but put it in a one-gallon container. And I planted those on April 28th, my birthday. So which produced tomatoes first, the ones planted on April 7th or the ones planted on April 28th? Turns out the first tomatoes that appeared came on the ones that were from the transplants, from the bigger containers that were planted three weeks later on April 28th. The more mature plants. Right. Pr uh, pr yeah. Yes. Well, that's good. That's a nice little test right there. And I am concerned about April 7th this year. The soil is still quite cold. And it was it was very cool through spring for the most part, which a lot of people kind of forgot about. We like to give these rules of thumb about a particular date or, you know, follow a particular pattern. But soil temperature is really arguably the most important part of it. And it was still kind of chilly back there in early April. I've got a customer who always plants March 15th. He's an older guy. I'm not going to argue with him. It's worked for him for years. He covers them with little hot caps if it gets cold. Or, and, and he complained to me that they just didn't take off this year. Well, I'm not surprised. March 15th is too early, in my opinion, to begin with. And then add on a you know, very cool month of April and even into May. They, they, they would have been better off sitting in containers, the right size containers, a bit longer for sure. Well, because I have raised beds, I, I wasn't too worried about soil temperature. When I planted those on April 7th, the, the soil temperature in the raised beds was 50 degrees, which is the minimal okay. temperature necessary. Yeah, bare uh, minimum, yes. And by April 28th in the raised beds, the soil temperature had risen up to around 60 degrees. You should probably bring people up to date on how you fertilize them because one of the biggest issues we encounter with raised beds is that they simply don't hold nutrients well. So when you put them in the ground in that raised planter, do you add something for them? This is what I do in the fall. Uh, after I've taken out and cleaned a bit, I'm in the process of it right now. I will mix in, in a four by eight bed, I will mix in three cubic actually uh probably seven cubic feet of worm castings and and just oh, wow. work that into the soil then i will get some organic compost and top the soil with that and then on top of that compost i have shredded leaves that go on and i've kept shredded leaves now in a smart pot uh, compost bag which is a hundred gallon bag so i have mm -hmm. a ready-made uh leaf mold ready to go on those beds and so that improves the soil it improves the uh, moisture retention and of course it's, it's building up the soil biology as well so you're just putting this on the surface and then not planting anything onto that or you do cover crop on top of that no i don't even do a I, I do some cover crops but not much yeah. okay. I, I find it's a lot easier and i don't mind staring at at shredded leaves on a raised bed all winter yeah, you're adding nitrogen. Actually, worth worm castings, they're, they're not, not cheap, but they're really, really good for cation exchange capacity. They retain the nutrients and they help retain moisture. They're a lot denser than most of the organic things that people add. So you've got the best of everything there. You've got organic material, you've got nitrogen, and you've got things that will help the soil retain those things for the next season. Uh, so that pretty well covers your nitrogen needs, I would imagine, for the following summer. Mm -hmm. I've done cover crops. Obviously, I like to just stick in fava beans and things like that. And it started raining and of course as we recall we had what uh, 13 atmospheric rivers last winter <laughs> something like and that. i had i had not gotten cover crops in where the tomatoes were so i had a bag of fava bean seed and it's january and the soil is so saturated i should not even have been walking on it but i went out there in my boots and i slogged my way down and i shoved a couple of fava bean seeds into the mud where each tomato plant had been and i just cut them off i don't pull them out i just cut them off and let the roots disintegrate there and every one of those fava beans 
seeds came up in spite of 100% soil saturation and very cold temperatures and 40 days of rain in the next 80 days. They did great. They just filled in that spot. And as far as I'm concerned, they're cultivating it for me, putting nitrogen right there. But what you're doing sounds pretty gourmet. I imagine your tomatoes were very appreciative. Uh, feed the soil first. That, that's my motto. Go. And it, it, it works now. Another thing, too, and because we've talked about this for years and you finally drilled it into my head. My raised <laughs> beds need more parallel drip irrigation lines. So now in a four foot wide bed, I have five lines running the length of the bed and I'm getting yeah, this is, better penetration and spread of the water. This is the, the patented Fred Hoffman drip irrigation technique that I describe to people regularly because I'll tell them you have four foot wide beds and five drip lines in there. Yeah. And they sort of look startled. I say, well, that's that way you get the distribution you need. If you've brought in this really fancy soil that you paid great money for from your local rock yard and then amended it with a bunch of nice stuff, the water tends to just run straight down. Right. And so people tend not to water enough. And you really have to you have to water differently than I do. I can give tomato plants a week's worth of water all at once. I can give them 10 or 12 gallons at once and it'll still be there uh, because I'm just doing out in garden soil, basically. In your case, you're growing them almost in a container of soil. And so you probably have to water, I'm guessing, two to three times a week uh, and not giving 10 to 12 gallons all at once, but giving each plant at least a couple gallons. And when I say that, people's eyes widen a couple of gallons. You don't really realize how much water it takes to grow food. <laughs> so overall, good rule of thumb, indeterminate tomatoes, 10 to 12 gallons of water total per week, whether all at once, if you can do that or split into a couple of irrigations, indeterminate types. And I've had this conversation with people who want to conserve water. I suggest just grow indeterminate tomatoes, grow them, get a good crop. You give them maybe five or six gallons of water per week. And when they're done, they're done. You can pull them out in August. I'm assuming that you're going to process them, can them, dry them, freeze them, whatever, because you've basically grown your crop the way local Yolo and Solano County farmers grow tomatoes, a whole crop all at once to then put by for the winter and for the following spring. And you can use less water in that case. But the common, common problem we're hearing is people trying to cut way back on the watering and then the poor plants barely grow and they barely yield. Right. So you do have to give them a lot of water. If you, want to, if you want to conserve water, grow one really good tomato plant, not 10 poorly watered tomato plants. I think you'll be happier with the results. Or move to someplace where it rains in the summer. <laughs> well, then you have disease problems. Yes, yeah. <laughs> we do. We do get live in a pretty good place for growing tomatoes here. So, but I think we were here to talk about tomato varieties that succeeded or failed. <laughs> yes, yes. And I will say my number one producers, and this I love to tout this one for gardeners who are kind of casual out there and just want a whole lot of something. And maybe they're I call the empty nester tomato. You know, they used to grow ten or twelve, but they just want one. They want to travel. They don't want to have to worry about it. Juliet. Came through once again. I just went out and took a picture of my Juliet hybrid tomato and the plant filled the cage very quickly, five feet tall, cascading back down to the ground with long branches and trusses of fruit by my just eyeball estimate there are about 400 fruits still on that plant and uh, these are these little meaty um, they're sauce tomatoes but really you can use them for anything I mean they're like cherry tomatoes just more elongated extremely productive extremely disease resistant all America selection from I think 1999 or something like that and has really taken off because it grows well everywhere very disease resistant very productive so Juliet wins the volume award this year did you have much cracking issues with Juliet 
It does if you don't water it carefully. Uh, there's so much fruit that even if a quarter of them split, it's not a big deal. But yes, that can be an issue as they're in their fruit expansion phase. If there's any drought stress, uh, then they will continue to try and expand and burst. And so you do have some of them split. It's so such a high yield that that's not a huge issue, but it is a watering related phenomenon. And it's just, you know, anyone can grow it anywhere is what it seems. It's one of those ones where if someone comes in and they're a new gardener and they want to know what's a really good tomato. And I'm thinking this person doesn't actually even know how to water or anything. Let's make sure they get at least one cherry tomato and at least one Juliet and at least one good hybrid. And then they can have fun with all the other varieties that are out there. But if they get a couple of those, they're sure to have a good yield. Two hybrids that you have recommended over the past few years, uh, I, I have planted now for, what, three or four years in a row, New Girl and Valley Girl, which I guess are related mm -hmm. to Early Girl. Yep. Valley Girl is a, an attempt at replacing Early Girl with, I think, a open pollinated. New Girl, I can't remember now off the top of my head whether it's open pollinated or hybrid. Uh, I can check real quickly here. It's from Johnny's Seeds, and mine have outperformed Early Girl. So that's a that's a tough mantle to try and steal. Yeah. <laughs> Early girl is very reliable everywhere, especially in California. New girl does outperform it. Very similar fruit, another four or five ounce red round tomato, really good flavor. I'll say this one thing, it's got a tougher skin. And in some ways that's an advantage. I mean, some people don't like a tough skin tomato because they're trying to make sauces and they don't want all the skin in there. But you know something about tougher skin tomatoes? They can take direct sun better. They can take rainy weather better. We hit the dupe point several mornings a couple weeks ago and some of the other tomatoes started spoiling out in the garden. New girl was just fine. We got some rain the other day over here on our side of the valley. No problem there either. As we get late in the season, some of your tomatoes will be spoiling as they're ripening. Not the tougher skinned ones. And new girl is in that category as is champion. And uh, lemon boy is another one. They'll be hanging on there in November. So they're good ones to have just for that alone. And here's the other point. Really good flavor and very good productivity on new girl. How is your valley girl this year? Valley Girl was so-so. Uh, it had good early production and then decided to uh, stop for the season. So I gave it a B minus just because it was very prolific uh, early on in the harvest season during July and August. But then it stopped. New Girl still in the ground, still producing. I agree with your ascertainment of the uh, New Girl's tougher skin is good uh, comment because uh, obviously if it... At this point in the tomato season in mid-October, if they're still on the ground, they're winners. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're still if they're still out there and not rotting as they ripen. And this is something I've taken to recommending to people. If you have a variety and you've been having problems with it softening or you go out there and they seem like they're spoiling as they ripen, pick a little earlier. Once we start getting into late August and September, it happened this year earlier than usual. Normally, it's later in September. We hit the dew point. Which is, by the way, for people listening in other parts of the country, we don't see dew here between about mid-May and almost October. You go out in the morning, you might see a little sparkle of it. That's it at best. These are not, we don't have a thing where, where plants are moist all the way till 10 or 11 in the morning. Once we hit the dew point and we have plants with moisture on the leaves and especially on the fruit, if they're beginning to ripen, any little bit of spoilage organism, any little bit of injury to the skin, whether it's a bird or a bug or just wind bumping it against the, the tomato cage, they'll start to spoil very rapidly. And most of us have had the unpleasant experience of reaching in to pick what looks like a great tomato 
and having it disintegrate in our hand as we pull on it. If that's a problem with a variety that has a thinner skin or is a really big fruited one, pick them before they're fully ripe. Pick them when they're turning color. If rain threatens, if extreme heat threatens, uh, if we have a lot of morning dew or, or if you're in a foggier zone where you have fog into the morning, pick them when they're midpoint on color and you can let them ripen on your kitchen counter. I have them sitting right now. I've got about 20 tomatoes on a dish towel on my counter that I picked over the last few days. They were not fully ripe, but they're ripening inside and I can monitor that. That way I don't go out there and find this was the day the ground squirrels discovered that tomatoes are edible <laughs> or this is <laughs> the, the temperature. We're going to be 49 degrees in a couple of mornings. You know, that's the coldest we've been so far. That can be cold enough to cause some spoilage organisms to get in. So you can ripen them on your counter under more even conditions. And if a heat wave threatens, I really suggest this. If you've got a lot of fruit and it's facing to the west and you hear we're going to be over 100 degrees for a couple of days, pick the ones that have some color already and you'll be a lot happier because they will ripen, continue to ripen indoors. They're climacteric fruit that continue the ripening process indoors. The flavor will be just as good. That's good advice for July, August, and September. Right now, well... (laughs) Enjoy the spoils. (laughs) Yes. Now now you go out and find what's hanging on there and doing well. But I did have a couple surprises this year. One was pineapple. Have you ever grown pineapple? No, the old, no. It's, it's an old heirloom. It's been around forever. Pineapple gives you a one-pound fruit. And I always tell people, you know, it's really rich, tangy flavor. That's where the name comes from. And it's one of the yellow-orange ones. It's got red all suffused in both the skin and the flesh. So it's a beautiful fruit. And you get five or six, typically. But they're big, and it's cool. And you've got some other tomato that's your major workhorse. This is just for fun. I got more than 20. I actually totaled 24. And most of them were over a pound. And the ones that weren't were very close to a pound. And I was watching those every morning, terrified that it was going to be the night that something came in (laughs) and discovered that my pineapple tomatoes were at the perfect stage of ripening. But I let them go fully ripe on the vine. It was astonishing. So this year, thanks to the combination of weather and luck and serendipity to throw all those things things together and good deep watering, gave me very good yields. And I would take them into work and people would look at this one and a quarter pound (laughs) orange, red, orange, yellow fruit with red straw streaking on it and just be amazed by it. So what's that one? I got to grow it next year. And I'll say, yeah, but grow it next year. That's fine. But plant some reliable hybrids as well. One variety that you've recommended over the years, I've grown it now uh, for two years, is bodacious, which gets very big. But I noticed it is susceptible to cracking. Yeah, we had issues with it, with, with the weather fluctuating. Bodacious did very well for me again. My yield was not as high as always, but it's definitely still up on my top 10 list. Bodacious, rugby, two new ones that have come on the market in recent years. I've tested them now for several years running, and they've been consistent. So that's a very good one. And when people want a beef steak type tomato, which is a long conversation because there's not really a beef steak tomato anymore, but there are beef sounding tomatoes like beef master and things like that. They're not really tolerant of our conditions here. You're, someone's asked me for a slicing tomato when they ask for that. They want one with a lot of that uh, the connective tissue that makes a whole slice hold together, a nice meaty texture as they call it in the business. And Bodacious meets those criteria, has very good flavor, has very good yield here, been consistent for me. But cracking can be an issue. That seems to be related again to watering, you know, somewhat related to erratic watering, but really more to just fluctuations in temperature. I've noticed more cracking on varieties when we get cooler spells and then suddenly get hot. And obviously, it just affects the fruit expansion phase. They're still fine. You just got to watch them carefully because if they crack and you let them go soft ripe, just like we were saying before, they could spoil very quickly. 
So I decided to uh, plant something that is placing themselves in the pantheon of the early girl type tomato. This one was called early doll. Early doll. Okay. Early doll. Well, it's been pulled out. <laughs> it, uh, <laughs> Didn't it? It was just uh, early? <laughs> October 7th. I yanked it out. It says, okay. uh, my notes were end of production, sparse production. I gave it a D. A this, D. Well, this was tomato don't, don't give up. Never give up on a tomato just from one year's performance. We know. Yeah. One, that's the other thing. Is never rave about a tomato just on one year's performance. A couple of years is what it takes. And you'll know, see whether that one does. Maybe it likes a hotter summer. Who knows? Yeah. One group that I've never really gotten into myself before were the ox heart tomatoes. Mm-hmm. And so this year I grew one called with apologies to my French teacher, Quart de Bue, Quart de Bue, which literally means heart of the ox. And this is an Italian variety, and it gave me about 40 fruit, and they were all close to a pound. And they're very meaty, very solid kind of fruit, as the name suggests. They're uh, they're, they're the kind you could make into sauce or puree or something like that. Definitely a, a winner this year for the first time, so I'll do it again next year, and I'll give you a full report after two years' experience. Quart debut ox heart. I've often felt that the Italian heirlooms and the Italian varieties are good ones for us to look at here in California because, of course, of the similarities of our climates. Mm-hmm. And I'd never really gotten into this group before, but there was a gardener down at the community garden right down the street from the nursery in Davis. And uh, they sw- he swears by this one, grows it every year. I don't know if he's an old Italian, probably. <laughs> I've learned a lot from old Italian gardeners over the years. And he swore by this one, so I grew it. We grew it from seed, sourced the seed from somewhere, and we're very, very impressed by it. I assume that this one is an actual varietal, Quar de Bu, uh, but Ox heart types in general do get touted a lot by folks from Italy. So I suggest people look for some of those. All right. We were both raving about the rugby tomato and I started uh, studying the history of the rugby tomato and it came out of Bulgaria. Uh, yes. <laughs> Geosem Select Seed Company. Uh, it's an elongated pink indeterminate tomato that is just so meaty. It can be it, it's sold as a a paste tomato or a sauce tomato. But in reality, you could slice it up and put it on a BLT and you'd be very, very happy. And because of yeah, it, its shape, it really makes for a pretty salad, too. And it's a, it's got VFF, you know, so that means it's got resistance to verticillium and both strains, two strains at least, of fusarium. It's been extremely productive for me. I have to say the fruit has held up during extreme heat, during the hot weather we had last year. Remember September last year when mm-hmm. we hit 116 yes. degrees? Record. Rugby was, rugby was fine, mm-hmm. partly because it seems to have a good density to its foliage, so the fruit was reasonably protected in the vine. And I, yeah, so very consistent producer. And I do like to see this fact that breeders are working on more of the tomatoes. Uh, I'm, I, I tried several this year and one called Big Mama, which is out of Burpee and they're up to five inches. I mean, these are huge, meaty fruit. And again, gave me 35 or 40 fruit. So that's another one I'm going to try for, uh, and see how it holds against rugby, put them side by side and have a competition. I do think sauce tomatoes are great choices for a lot of people because as, at least my experience has been they hold up better in the heat, in the direct sun, uh, seem to have better disease resistance. Rugby is definitely a winner. That one will be growing every year and selling it every year. Now, you're not going to find that at most garden centers because big wholesale growers haven't picked this one up yet. If you're listening out there, wholesale growers, 
look for rugby. You'll have to order the seed from Bulgaria. But we got <laughs> ours from one of the regular online vendors, probably Totally Tomatoes or, or Seeds and Such, one of that crowd. Been very impressed by it. Uh, one of my customers recommended it initially because he sat next to someone from the breeding company mm, and okay. uh, at a party and learned about it that way. And so I ordered the seed originally from Bulgaria, but now I can get it from some of the regular suppliers. For but Big Mama is one to look for if you're a fan of Burpee Seed Company. Uh, another one, very, very good producer. So I've been impressed by the new lines of of home processing tomatoes that some of the growers seem to have come up with. I'm not always impressed with the directions of breeding programs. All of these miniature tomatoes that are coming on the market, I'll, I'm holding withholding judgment on those. None of us at our garden center like the purple or blue tomatoes, the new ones that have come on the market. The flavor is off. None of us like them. Um, maybe I'm upsetting some people by saying that. They're very pretty. I take pictures of them. They're lovely to photograph, but don't like the flavors on those. But these new sauce tomatoes are great. And uh, as again, you know, ones like Juliet as well, where they're just being bred for yield. They did some testing at the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center this summer. They grew three tried and true tomato varieties, Big Beef, Lemon Boy, and Celebrity. And they planted those varieties, newer alleged improved varieties, Big Beef Plus, Lemon Boy Plus, and Celebrity Plus. Hmm. The results were mixed. (laughs) During a 30-day period of harvesting in July and August, the original Big Beef tomato plant produced 84 tomatoes with an average weight of 15 ounces. Big Beef Plus, however, only produced 75 tomatoes with an average weight Mm. of 8 ounces. That's almost half. (laughs) Interesting. The taste testers, though, preferred the taste and texture of Big Beef Plus. Both Lemon Boy and Lemon Boy Plus tomatoes were harvested to about the same number, 132 to 111. The size was about the same, about seven ounces. And Lemon Boy, though, was preferred by the taste testers to Lemon Boy Plus by about a three to two ratio. Hmm. Celebrity Plus produced 50 pounds. The Celebrity produced 40 pounds. And they're both about the same size of tomato. And 71% uh, preferred the flavor of Celebrity Plus, but they preferred the texture of the old Celebrity. And the big difference, they said, was the big was the size of the plant. The original Celebrity, because it's a semi-determinate, uh, stayed compact, about three or four feet tall, while Celebrity Plus uh, got over five feet tall. Oh, so Celebrity Plus is actually probably indeterminate. It sure sounds that way, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. And well, semi-determinate was a term that was applied to celebrity when it came on the market and did not have a meaning before that. So I think they made it up for for that particular variety. Celebrity is an incredibly popular variety that I don't like. And I don't, you know, uh, part of it is that the plant is not vigorous. It yields well, no question about that, but there's not a good density of foliage. I get more sun scowled on celebrity tomatoes than any other variety. It yields very well. It's thin skin, so it cooks down real well. That's all true. But generally speaking, I've just had more problems with it. So I will jump on the Celebrity Plus bandwagon. But I'm not sure what the plus is that's been added because it's got every disease resistant gene already built in. So I'm not sure what they've added with this new iteration of it, perhaps resistance to another strain of fusarium or something. Or what? what is the plus all about? More branches. 
More branch, <laughs> more foliage. There yeah. you go. <laughs> yeah. The big disappointment this year, and we need to talk about this jalapeno gate plus, if you will. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, where yes. people are getting a lot of surprises. And my favorite small tomato, and it has been for years, is an heirloom called Gardener's Delight. It's yeah. bigger than a cherry tomato. It's a, called a grape-sized tomato, but it's been prolific in past years. It's guaranteed to give you tomatoes first probably in june and last all the way if the weather holds through thanksgiving and beyond this year that plant is out because hmm. it wasn't gardener's delight i oh, should have well, paid okay. attention to the picture on the packet that said gardener's delight it was a picture of a standard cherry tomato and that's what that <laughs> plant was it was a standard run-of-the-mill sweet 100 kind of cherry tomato that wasn't very productive you know i, I just felt bad that it was I a very wasted space it a, on it somewhat frustrating year from a retail standpoint to have had this problem the seed mix-up that apparently was way at the highest level of our industry i mean it was at the seed level not at the bedding plant level yeah. we always have someone who you know there's there's labels mixed up or something in the flats. Customers move things around. No, this was a kind of across the board. I posted a comment about this when you first mentioned it to me mid-season and someone said, well, that's why all my jalapenos are bell peppers. <laughs> yes, that is why all your jalapenos were bell peppers. That is why my chef's choice orange was actually something else entirely. It was a seed mix-up. And at least I can say we didn't do it at the retail level this time, but it was very, very frustrating. And, you know, it, these are some of our favorite varieties that were affected by this, unfortunately. Mostly pepper but apparently tomatoes as well. I don't know which company to blame it on. I don't think we will. I'm hoping they've tightened up their procedures, shall we say, yeah. for next year, because that was uh, fortunately there was publicity about it. Otherwise, we'd be sounding as though we're trying to make up some excuse for why you got the wrong, wrong bell pepper, the wrong tomato. Yeah, that was very frustrating. Yeah, and uh, I have a funny feeling this is the tip of the iceberg, that there have been plenty more. And I've heard that, too, from uh, listeners and, and people that I meet at uh, the community gardens, uh, horticulture centers. They're disappointed in that what they thought they were getting, they didn't get, that it didn't look yeah. anything like what they were promised. Right. Sometimes if it's just yield or fruit size, we assume that there is a problem with the gardener. But if it doesn't look anything like what was promised, it was a problem with the nursery or the grower or the seed supplier. I do grow some, some really weird tomato. And, uh, you know, some of these things that we got by accident were definitely uh, strange. But there was one I planted. Did I send you a picture of ricin tomat? Ricin tomat is a German, as it sounds, variety, which looks like a cluster of grapes. Hmm. That's small. and uh, it well, it's one fruit that oh, looks like a cluster of yeah. grapes. Yes, you did send me that picture. <laughs> yes, yes, it looked like a pregnant tomato. Indeed. And uh, I saw the picture on the catalog and uh, you know, the, the young man who helps me make these decisions looked at it and said, well, that's weird. And I said, yeah, that's weird. Let's grow it. So we did. And it was each fruit is about three quarters of a pound. And it looks like you fused together a bunch of elongated cherry tomatoes into a single fruit. And the way people eat this is apparently they'll split off a piece and eat it. And it is yeah. interesting. I, I suggest for tomato aficionados out there that you look for this one and try it. 
I'm probably not going to grow it for sale because it's weird, too weird for that. Ryzen Tomat, and we found it at one of the seed vendors out there. It's very rich flavor, very tangy, very rich. I went ahead and went to the hassle of cutting out the stem and cooking it down into a sauce, and it was very seedy, so I strained all that out. One of the richest flavored tomatoes I've ever grown. Once you can get past the fact that it's one of the weirdest looking tomatoes you'll ever grow as well. So for tomato, for the 5% of you out there that like to grow really weird tomatoes as well as good tomatoes, try Ryzen Tomat next year. And I also want to mention Brad Gates, you know, the wild boar farms. And there's a couple of his that are standards for me. And, and there's one that he's dropped from his production in the past. I think I've single-handedly got him to keep going with it. Sweet Carneros Pink is a very productive, huge producer, great flavor, cooks well, eats well. And just the only reason it doesn't sell real well is it's not red. It's mm -hmm. pink. In my experience, it's pink tomatoes, even from the picture, just don't sell themselves as well. This is one you should look for, and you should ask whoever carries your Wild Boar Farms tomatoes to ask him for it so we can keep that one in production. I'll pass it along to Brad as well. But his Red Furry Boar was another great yielder for me this year. And the one that's going by a couple names, Michael Pollen, which is a very unusual-looking fruit. I grow it every year. It gave me probably 80 fruit. They're small. They're about three-ounce fruit. Very sweet, tangy, and, uh, and very uh, probably one of the his most unique varieties uh, and it's being sold under a couple of different names. I, I gather in other parts of the country, they sell it as mint julep. Not sure why. Michael Pollan is what we sell it as on the coasts. He's the famous author. And I suggest you look for that one as well, because he still has that one in production and it's always been a very consistent performer for me. So what's on the horizon of different tomato varieties that you'll be planting next year? Well, I'm looking at all these new dwarf tomatoes. You've probably heard about the dwarf tomato project, right? Uh, which is in sort of an open sourced breeding project. And some of these are, are filtering into the trade. Um, well, Brad is growing some of them. He gave me a couple to try. One of them was a version of San Marzano that he called Mini Marzano. Okay, this plant grew to about 14 inches by 14 inches, produced about 40 fruit, each of them the size of your thumbnail. Great flavor, but that's a little small for me. So, I, again, we're holding judgment on some of these dwarf tomatoes, but they do have potential. I mean, there's always been a market for small, compact tomatoes for the home gardener who only has a, you know, a planter box or something like that. I can't tell you how many times someone will come up to our counter with a, a little... 12 inch pot and a tomato plant wanting to know if this is a good one to grow in this 12 inch pot. And we're always having to say there is no tomato that will grow in a 12 inch pot. Well, we could be wrong. There may be miniature tomatoes that will grow in a 12 inch pot if this particular one is any indication. So let's all watch for these miniature tomatoes. Try some of them, see how the flavor is, see what the yield is, see if they'll work, you know, in, in a, a, a patio or a balcony or something like that for someone who's limited for space. So they have some potential. We just need to test these out and see if, how they do with high temperatures and what the flavor is, because that's obviously the big thing that people are after. That one didn't really impress me in terms of flavor or anything like that, but boy, it was miniature, and it certainly did produce in a small container, so there's some like that. That's something to watch for, some of the miniature type. So we'll keep an eye on all the new varieties from the big breeders, of course, and I notice they're going in the direction, continuing in the direction of hybrids with heirlooms. You know, they're trying to get hybrid vigor and productivity on heirloom varieties. All right, let's keep trying those. That's good to have more disease resistance in what would otherwise be considered an heirloom tomato. But I really think the direction of the sauce tomatoes is the one I keep coming back to because uh, they, every one I've tried, every new one, Super Sauce is another one I did. I mentioned the Big Mama earlier. Both very
very good production, great for salsa, for cooking, and really good flavor. And a bigger sauce tomato, as you described with rugby, can be sliced. You know, you, right. you look at it as a sauce tomato, but if you're someone that wants tomatoes on a sandwich, you will be happy with these as well. Yeah, I think the days of Roma and San Marzano just might be limited. I haven't bothered with Roma for quite a long time. It's considered the canary in the coal mine for blossom end rot. Mm -hmm. Do I have to explain what canary in the coal mine means? Uh, okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, it's, the early, it's the early indicator yes. of, of blossom end rot. How's that? It just gets it no matter what. It's going to get it. The first ones are going to get throw them away. The next ones will be fine on the same plant. But it's a, it's a little plant and you don't need that. You can get these newer varieties that are more productive. San Marzano, I do stock every year as a retailer because I have a customer base that likes it. It's older gentlemen who are of a particular heritage and uh, it is a very good producer here but you know when i grew it last year i didn't pick a lot of them because i had these other great sauce tomatoes out there rugby was out there the other ones were out there they're more for your money in terms of what you're getting san marzano does very well don't get me wrong its yield is always great but these other ones are just so much more tomato in each tomato san marzano is a small skinny thing and it's relatively hollow honestly these other ones like rugby and big mama are beefy uh, they give you lots to work with especially if you're into salsas and things like that because they're chunky enough that you can just kind of chop them up, cook them partway down for that kind of fresh salsa that people like to use where it's still got pieces of tomato in it. They're really good for that. San Marzano's got its following, but you're right. The older generation will pass and so will it. Well, I think we've exhausted the topic. <laughs> <laughs> of tomatoes. There you go. So watch for sauce tomatoes, watch for the new hybrids, and uh, everybody should plant rugby and bodacious. I don't know about bodacious, but uh, <laughs> rugby definitely, yeah. It's uh, and every year will be different. Every area of the country will be different. Let me know what your favorites were. What were the successes? What were the failures? And um, by trading this information, maybe we can expand the palette. That's the important thing. Write them down. Keep a journal on this kind of thing. I started that years and years ago, and I would look back and go, oh, yeah, I grew that tomato 20 years ago. It did pretty well. Let's try it again because there's so many new varieties every year. And also with consolidation and loss of growers, um, there's going to be, in my opinion, fewer tomato varieties on the shelf at your garden centers. This is something I noticed this year. A lot of uh, hardware stores that aren't really nurseries didn't have a big vegetable selection this spring for one reason or another, and uh, they didn't have a lot of diversity in that selection. So the way to get the really unusual ones is start your own from seed or go to an actual garden center. Yes. And get yourself a greenhouse too. That works too. That helps. All right. <laughs> well, I hope everybody had a, a, a very tasty tomato year this year. And of course, we look forward to a tasty 2024 tomato year as well. Don Shore will help us along the way. Don, thanks for uh, all the tomato knowledge. Always good to be here. Thanks, Fred.